0: And hey, everybody, a few things before we get to the show proper. Uh, first, we just wanted to say thanks to everyone who came out to our live show in Los Angeles last week mm-hmm. to watch us be very goofy with guests like comedian Jenny Slate and Father John Misty. That's right, who at one point kicked part of our stage set to bits. <laughs> it's
1: true. But anyway, this week we're recovering. Uh, it's We're being honest. So <laughs> you're about to hear a rebroadcast of one of our favorite episodes. We assure you it's a great one. But we also want you to know that this coming Tuesday, we'll be releasing an all-new podcast-only episode with never-before-heard bits of our interview with Ian McKellen
0: and more. That's right. Again, it's all new. And again, you can grab that on Tuesday, February 9th, from wherever podcasts are podcasted. Meanwhile, here's your icebreaker.
2: Hey, here's a joke. What do you call an alligator in a vest? I don't know. An investigator.
1: I love that one. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download. An hour of culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations.
0: You just got a joke from actor Olivia Wilde. That'll break the ice. We'll talk with her later about her latest movie, Meadowland. Plus, legendary musician Elvis Costello shares some stories from his memoir. And
1: if all that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in October. So cast your mind back to a time when Iowa was just a great place for a Halloween corn maze. (laughs) And when, as at any party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. Iran's ruling
3: Guardian Council has approved the nuclear deal.
1: 2015 is one of California's worst fire seasons in recent memory. The first Democratic presidential debate is over. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Manoush Zemirodi. She is the host of Note to Self, the, quote, tech show about being human, Manoush. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend?
4: I got to say, one of the things I do not enjoy about dinner parties is the cooking part. Mm. And if I could have Romeo... In my kitchen or greeting me at a restaurant. I don't know. I'd be kind of into it. So
1: who is Romeo? Your husband? A boyfriend? What's happening? So Romeo
4: (laughs) could be a robot in my kitchen or restaurant coming very, very soon. I was seeing this article in CNET. He is being built by a team at the University of Bremen. Mm. And Romeo, you can walk into a restaurant and he will say, hello, what would you like to eat? (sighs) I mean, maybe not quite with that weird accent, but um, and then Romeo will be like super normal human. Like, that's great. Thank you for coming. Some of his compadres are also learning how to flip pancakes, Mm. make popcorn. And the way that they're learning how to do this is through WikiHow, which has the website like on there. It says step by step instructions. They're actually using those instructions to teach the robots.
0: But is this what we want in a restaurant? Don't we go there to interact with other humans like waiters and, you know, have a back and forth?
4: True, but what if I told you the price of your meal could be cut in half because we didn't have to employ humans?
1: How are we going to get to the restaurant if the street is filled with unemployed humans? <laughs> I mean, this sounds like it's from the yeah. just-because-we-can-doesn't-mean-we-should files to me. No, but let's, mean, come on. Okay,
4: think about people who have, like, disabilities, who can't do everyday tasks. You wouldn't have to program something. You could mm. just give voice commands. So it's not just about... you you guys, and your damn dinner, okay? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: All right. Well, as long as they don't read the wiki-how about spitting in your food. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Manoj Zemirodi, thanks for the small talk. It was a pleasure. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it.
0: It's our crowd-pleasing history lesson with booze. First, the history. This
1: week, back in 1957, the self-described architect of rock and roll abandoned rock
0: and roll. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
5: By the late 1950s, Little Richard's career was hot as hell. In just two years, he'd racked up seven gold records. And when he played them live, crowds swooned as if possessed. People had to be kept from hurling themselves from balcony seats just to get closer to him. And afterwards, many, many of them got to intimately closer to him backstage but in October 57 everything changed on a night flight to an Australian gig Richard looked out the window saw the red-hot engines and thought they were on fire simultaneously he had a vision of angels holding the plane aloft then after landing a ball of flame shot across the sky it turned out to be the Russian satellite Sputnik but Richard took it all as an omen. On the ferry a few days later, he told his bandmates he was leaving rock and roll to become a man of God. And to prove it, he threw his diamond rings into the waves. For five years, Richard made good on his promise. He traded in his legendary promiscuity for marriage. He went to college to study theology, and the only music he recorded was gospel. I'm on the Richard returned to secular rock in 62 for a series of historic shows in Europe. But he never recaptured the level of fame he gave up five years before. Soon he was eclipsed by the style of pop practiced by his relatively unknown opening act, The Beatles.
0: So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Rebecca McGalliard, bartender at the TikTok room in Little Richard's birthplace of Macon, Georgia. Rebecca, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire?
6: Well, it inspired me to make our martini the good golly Miss Molly.
0: (laughs) You have that on the menu already?
6: No, I don't. We actually already had a long, tall Sally martini, but I made this one specially for the interview.
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's very nice of you. You should start an entire Little Richard menu.
6: <laughs> We definitely could. There's so many artists, though, from Macon, Georgia, and that played at the TikTok Room that we have a full martini list of artists-inspired martinis.
0: Wait, Little Richard played at the TikTok Room?
6: He did. He actually played around 1949. Um, Miss Ann's TikTok Room is what it was called back then.
0: That is amazing. I didn't. Who else was played there?
6: Well, we also had Otis Redding, James Brown, oh, Johnny man. Jenkins. Those are just a few that we've had. We're
0: just going to do a ton of rock and roll histories and just come back and back and back to you for drinks. <laughs> Alright, so the good golly Miss Molly, what is in this thing? It's a martini, well, I'm assuming gin.
6: Well actually I wanted to do a little bit more southern type of feel, so I used the Remy Martin V S O P. But in addition to it, I added a splash of cherry juice, simple syrup, okay. fresh lime and lemon juice. I really wanted it to give you that sour like tart taste, and then end with a sweetness.
0: Oh, uh, that's true. If you've ever listened to any of his gospel music, his voice, he's known for being a screamer, but he has just a beautiful, beautiful gospel voice.
6: Well, it punches you, too. <laughs> it gets you in the face.
0: His voice and this drink
6: It has all of the dynamics that I feel like Little Richard really brought into rock and roll. I just,
0: it sounds wonderful, although I do, to really nail it, I think you should put a diamond ring at the bottom of the glass, like his discarded <laughs> diamond ring.
6: Just so somebody can maybe throw it to their bartender.
0: Well, it would be perfect for when people <laughs> propose to other people at your bar.
6: Very true. That's a really good idea. We do have a lot of proposals on the weekend. There'll be
7: peace
1: in the valley someday.
0: I told you that sweet voice. Amazing. Yeah. Also, Brendan, uh, Rebecca told me that at one point, Little Richard lived at the TikTok room. And this mm. was in his very wild early days. So the so most he, exciting performances were happening offstage. That's what we're. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Gotcha. People, you will find all our drink recipes online. We are dinnerpartydownload.org.
3: And now, time to eavesdrop.
1: Laurie Anderson pioneered elements of electronic music and performance art. In her long career, she's lent her eerily cool voice to work by Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, and her late husband, Lou Reed. Her new film, Heart of a Dog, takes on topics from the death of a pet to life in post-9-11 America. And she writes stories. Today we overhear her tell one.
3: Hi, this is Laurie Anderson, and here's a story from a collection called Transitory Life. A few years ago, I'd been working a lot in the studio, and I I was getting very burned out on all this equipment. So I was looking for places where they didn't use any technology at all. I happened to be in western Pennsylvania, and I ran into some Amish people at a farmer's market. And they were selling vegetables and bread, and they all looked so incredibly relaxed and happy, just standing there with their arms at their sides, kind of peaceful and smiling, like... If you wanted to buy their bread, that was fine, and if you didn't, I was fine too. And I thought, wow, I wonder what it's like to live that way. Now for a lot of them, time stopped back in the early 16th century, and they haven't used anything invented in the last four and a half hundred years. They just still use wheels and wind. So I was hanging around with them, and I asked if I could come and help out and do some weeding or cleaning up on their farm, and they said, sure, why not, that, yeah, that'd be great, that, that'd be wonderful. And when I got to the farm, it started to rain, and it rained nonstop for days. And the family I stayed with was a couple and their son and a newborn who never stopped crying. And so we all sat around the kitchen table, listening to the rain and the crying, and waiting for the weather to change. Once in a while, the rain would stop, and we'd run out and pull a weed or two, and then it was back to the kitchen table. Now, actually, I kind of like sitting around kitchen tables, but I'd never done it for days on end, and I was finding it kind of hard to remember why I'd wanted to come out there in the first place. The longer I was there, the more obvious it was I might have come at kind of a bad time, because basically there was always an argument going on. Now, I've seen grudges, and I've seen the slow burn of rage, but I'd never seen anything like this before, this kind of slow-motion fury. The woman would suddenly look up, and she'd say, David, you know I asked you never to speak to me in that way again. But since no one had said anything for hours, it seemed like kind of a weird thing to say. So I would look over at the husband, and there was no reaction. He was like tuned to another station. And it would be another hour or so before he answered her with some equally bitter comeback. Then one afternoon, their three-year-old, named Aguilan, which is Spanish for north wind, began a temper tantrum that went on for hours. And his mother is holding him and he's kicking her in the face and screaming. She's saying, now, Aguilan, you know that we agreed that if you would just stop kicking mommy in the head, we would revise our agreement about suspending your privileges for next week and on and on like that. And I'm thinking, what does she think this is? The UN? I mean, this kid is trying to kill her. And I thought, you know, this is just never going to end. And then a dense fog rolled in and we're back to sitting at the table staring at each other. Then one day, the grandma came to visit and she joined us around the table and she keeps saying to Aquilan, now Aquilan, give grandma a kiss. And he's on the spot now, and I can see the look in his eyes, and it's the wary, hunted look of someone who suddenly realizes he's about to be tricked. But she keeps saying, when will you kiss grandma, when will you kiss her, and she's repeating this over and over like a loop. And finally he mumbles, I'll kiss you when we're in the living room. Which I guess seems pretty safe to him, since we've been in the kitchen for several days now. A couple of hours later, we're all actually in the living room, and the mood is darkened even more. And she says, well, Aguilan, we're in the living room now, waiting for her part of the deal. And the deal he'd made slowly comes back to him, And you can watch him remember it. And he drags himself over in slow motion and puts his mouth to her cheek. And I'm watching it happen. A tiny boy who had just learned to kiss without affection. To kiss as a form of payment. As part of a deal.
0: Lori Anderson, her film Heart of a Dog was shortlisted for the Best Documentary Oscar. You're listening to her song The Lake, it's from the soundtrack.
1: All right, coming up actor Olivia Wilde, comedian Paul F. Tompkins, and musician Elvis Costello when the dinner party download continues.
0: Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let
1: you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in October. It's well worth a second listen. Coming up, we have musician Elvis Costello talking about his memoir, and comedian Paul F. Tompkins
0: tells you how to handle talkers at movie theaters. But first... Let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and it's actress Olivia Wilde. She played the secretive young Dr. 13 on the hit TV series House, and she's appeared in dozens of films, including Rush and the Oscar-nominated Her. But in October, Brendan spoke to her about Meadowland, a movie she produced and starred in, which came out on DVD this week.
1: It's about a young couple whose child has gone missing. Wilde plays the mother, Sarah, and it's not your typical Hollywood drama. It's as much a meditation on grief as it is a story. When we met, I asked why she thought it would work.
2: When I read the script and I saw that it did not focus on the disappearance of the child or the investigation, that it was focusing Mm -hmm. on one year later and what these parents were going through, I so appreciated that they were cutting out all the kind of procedural Procedural elements. Procedural crime stuff. So I knew that this was going to be different. And I, I loved how it wasn't afraid to portray Sarah as Your character, yeah. my character, as the slightly less sympathetic one. You know, she's, for instance, she teaches in a public school and she's a really terrible teacher. Yeah. This is like, this is not Dangerous Minds. <laughs> this is not Half Nelson. This is not Stand and Deliver. <laughs> no, she's, she's terrible. She doesn't have the will to inspire other yeah. young minds. She's, she's going through the motions. Yeah, so we're allowed to kind of create an unusual character that mm. audiences are... are I think, delighted by because she's different.
1: And this is one of the benefits that comes from a movie that's directed and produced by women, right? Because people talk about the need to have more women in Hollywood, but it's not just for the sake of fairness. It's because there's going to be different perspectives and different ways to tell these stories. Yeah, Yeah. if
2: you have more uh, female filmmakers, you're going to see more interesting female characters on screen. I mean, for instance, there were a couple things in the script where um, some of the male members of our production team said, well, that's a little cold or that's a little rough or that's a little harsh. I can't imagine that she would do that. And the women would say, oh, yeah, she would. This woman is dealing with the worst possible scenario, yeah. I would do that and worse. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. Men don't like to think of women as being in any way, um, of not being nurturing. Mm-hmm. They like to think of women as being nurturing. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's an interesting thing to have to say, no, in order to fully respect women as equals, you yeah. have to allow for them not to be nurturing. Yeah.
1: So I mentioned you didn't only act in this movie, but you produced it. What was that like wearing two caps on a production like this?
2: I think it did help me uh, on this film particularly to be one of the producers because, for instance, there's one scene in the film that's a kind of a release, like the character finally loses uh, her mind and and has a chance to finally kind of go nuts. And catharsis. It, yes, yeah. there's true catharsis. And we shot it on this road in New Jersey called Fish House Road, which is a thoroughfare for 18-wheelers. Uh-huh. And... In order to shoot the scene, we had to stop traffic, which was really like stopping uh, these trucks from delivering goods across America. This is
1: like the lifeblood of the mid-Atlantic region. Yeah, Yeah.
2: sorry, (laughs) Amazon.com. But we had about three or four minutes at a time to shoot the scene, and then they'd have to open up traffic again. So had I just been an actor in the film, if they had said, listen, you have... Uh, about 90 seconds to perform this incredibly go difficult yeah. scene, yeah. I would have been like, what is this? Yeah. The injustice, it's so unfair. And instead, because I knew exactly what went into that, mm. I was like,
1: okay, let's do this. Well, you're not entirely a stranger to producing things. Uh, both of your parents are award-winning journalists, yes. Andrew and Louise Coburn, who, in addition to having written several books, have also produced several documentary films. Yeah. You come from a big journalistic family, in fact. You're, both your uncles are journalists. I believe even your grandfather on the one side was a successful journalist. How, if at all, does that inform your acting? Do you think it does?
2: I think it does. You know, what they all have in common is they're all storytellers. And I think this is my way of storytelling. I think I approach my characters in a sort of investigative journalist way. Mm -hmm. I like to gather as much information about them as possible. Uh, I like to ask, uh, you know, in my mind, ask the other characters about them. Often if you look through a script, you'll... You'll notice that other actors, sorry, other characters responding to your character is actually giving you the most information about your character. So Mm -hmm. just looking for those clues. And, uh, you know, the thing that my family is is great at is just being really curious and really observant. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes a good journalist, a good writer, and I think a good actor, too. So I live in New York. I love living in New York. I ride the subway every day. I get so many ideas from just being in the world. And I think part of that comes from, from my family and just the way we were raised to kind of keep our eyes open and ask a lot of questions. But I, it,
1: it occurs to me when I was researching that, that, you know, DC is known for Hollywood for ugly people. Yeah. So clearly you had to leave DC. Like they would, get not, out of there. they would not, if you it, wouldn't even survive there.
2: It is a one trick town. And that's yeah. why LA was weirdly familiar to me when I got there. That's true. I mean, it's, it's an industry town yeah, about power. Everyone's kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was a total outsider when I moved there. I wore a lot of Brown corduroy, so I stuck out. A lot. I stuck out.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you you fit right in public radio with brown corduroy. I really do. <laughs> Although you're wearing it, that looks more like Rachel Comey or something like that. <laughs> that does not true. really.
2: This is not the typical me. Yeah.
1: Well, you were on television today. Exactly. Um. All right. Well, look, we have two standard questions. Okay. We ask our guests, and the first question is, "What question are you tired of being asked in interviews?"
2: Mm, there are so many. I played a doctor on television for right. five years. In-house? In-house. And people ask me if I actually feel like a doctor. If I... Hmm, interesting interesting. <laughs> they ask you if for diagnoses. If I learned any medical knowledge.
1: And the house question is dangerous because if you were, say... I don't know, getting a sandwich somewhere and someone started choking, people are going to look to you they, to help it's them. Happened and it's like, happened on an heck? airplane. Really? It's
2: happened on an airplane where they said, is anyone on the plane a doctor? Are you kidding? And the people have looked to me like, can you help? <laughs> and the problem with it is that I actually think I can help. Like wow. I've convinced myself that I know that's, a lot more about that's the method. medical profession <laughs> than I actually do. So it's very dangerous. Don't yeah. tempt me. All right. I will perform surgery I'm, on you.
1: I'm glad I'm perfectly healthy for this uh, portion of the interview. Okay, let me get to our second question which is uh, tell us something we don't know and this could be an interesting fact about you that you haven't shared in interviews or it could just be an interesting piece of trivia.
2: Um, gosh. This is, isn't it so sad when you realize like you've divulged so much about yourself? <laughs> well, you are an actor and you have you been for a long time. don't know if there's anything people don't know. Oh, Let me think. Um, I mean, there's
1: some I, there's some interesting tidbits to your biography that I'm not sure everyone knows.
2: Okay, help me out.
1: Well, you're going to be in this upcoming Scorsese yes. HBO show called Vinyl. That's right. So that's about 70s rock and roll. Yeah. And I did read about an anecdote where, as a little girl, yes, your parents were kind of big dinner party throwers in yeah. DC, <laughs> and, Mick Jagger. and Mick Jagger sent you to bed.
2: Yeah, but not in the way that. You imagine Mick Jagger sending people to bed.
1: I wouldn't let Mick Jagger anywhere near my little
2: girl. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, that's maybe something people don't know. I, uh, my pa- Mick Jagger is a really smart dude. Mm. and Went to the London School of Economics. Exactly. Very interested in economics, very interested in, in the world. And I think when he's in D.C., he likes to hang out with, you know, the, the nerds.
1: Politicos and exactly. journalists. Yeah.
2: And my parents had some of the best dinner parties for the nerds. The coolest of the bunch. And I really, I, I used to climb under the the dining room table and with a pillow thinking that none of them knew I was there. Yeah. Like I would army crawl under <laughs> their legs and just lay down and listen to them talk. And uh, at one point Mick Jagger was there and this was an unusual thing to have someone from like the shiny professions, you know, music yeah. and entertainment. Uh, and I had no idea who he was. And I said, excuse me, you're sitting in my chair. Because that was my how, place at the dinner table. God, I mean, I must have I was really young. Yeah. I was like eight or something. Yeah. And so what and he just said, go to bed. <laughs> and I was like, who is this guy?
1: So when you were crawling under there, could you recognize from his boots that he was a rock I was star? Like, Who's when?
2: this guy? What are these it, like pointy? They're probably shoes? platforms. <laughs> Who's this lady?
1: Olivia Wilde, her film Meadowland is out this weekend. And in case you were wondering why she has a different last name than her parents, the answer is she changed it. Yes, she took her surname from the great Irish wit and playwright Oscar Wilde. Uh Aha. Who
0: would have felt right at home at one of those dinner parties, it seems like. He would also have pointy boots, you're right. (laughs) I, I feel like he would. All right, so we've met our guest of honor... We've cast an aspersion about Mick Jagger. This seems to me like a good time to learn some manners.
1: (laughs) Agreed. Each week you send in your questions about proper etiquette, and here to answer them this time around is Paul F. Tompkins. He hosts the fusion talk show No You Shut Up, the podcast Spontanea Nation. He has appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher, and he does the voice of Mr. Peanut Butter on the Netflix series BoJack Horseman. Honestly, that's only the tip of the iceberg. His latest project is a comedy special for Comedy Central called Crying and Driving. Paul... Welcome, and we're surprised that you found a moment to
0: join us.
7: We're very busy. (laughs) No one is more surprised than I. Oh. (laughs) But thank you for having me.
0: But it's a joyous surprise.
7: It's a pleasant surprise.
0: So your new special, let's talk about it now. Okay. Uh, It mainly deals with how you went from, these these are your own words, a self-loathing guy (laughs) who was struggling to survive in L.A. with somehow without knowing how to drive, uh, to being a much happier guy with a loving wife. What was the starting point for writing this show? Like, what of the stories you tell was the central scenario for you?
7: I think it began with learning how to drive, uh, conquering a lifelong fear, and uh, finally gaining a level of independence that was unbelievably new to me, but very commonplace for everyone else.
0: Most of us do this in high school. As a kind of matter of course. Mm -hmm. Was your high school not located in the world? Did you
7: hear the lifelong fear part? (laughs) It seemed impossible to me. When I was a teenager, and my friends were getting their driver's license, I'm like, what is everyone doing? Like, the the amount of things that you had to remember in order to make a car go and not kill anyone, it seemed an impossible amount to me. I was like a medieval peasant about it, like, oh-ho, you will not catch me entering the belly of that iron dragon.
1: Throughout this comedy special and your humor, there's kind of a, a sweetness. There's almost no cursing or blue humor. Did you purposely decide not to do more aggressive comedy?
7: Um, I'm not a very aggressive person, and so it's it's uh, my. This my, is why you weren't
1: a driver, Paul. Probably. <laughs> yes. That's Well,
7: I'm sorry. The best drivers are defensive drivers. Of
0: course. Exactly. Right. That's what it says in the lesson. Yes. <laughs> That's right.
7: Mm-hmm. Um, as far as like the language is concerned. I prefer it that way. I'm not here to say... I I never announce it. I don't make a big deal out of it. Like, folks, don't worry. You're not going to hear any curse words tonight. The whole family can watch this. Um, because I don't I don't feel it. First of all, I don't feel like the whole family can watch it. Because I, hopefully I'm talking about ideas that are sophisticated enough that... It's not It's not just silliness. You know, there's yeah. sophisticated hopefully sophisticated ideas being represented. But but that's actually kind
0: of my question, is the difficulty of... Because it it's still edgy comedy in some ways. I mean, you're getting it very dark places, but you're taking away one of the tools that one uses to express dark things, which is cursing or <laughs> right. aggressiveness. Right. Do you find yourself up against a wall sometimes, or like, man, I wish I was the kind of person that would just unleash some F words?
7: No, right? you know, I mean, the real challenge with, with comedy, no matter who you are, no matter what your style is, is... Getting an idea that is funny in your head into language that makes sense to strangers. You know, mm-hmm. so that they can see the funny idea. How do I make this relatable? How do I make this understandable to a group of people? And and lately, the way my style has evolved is uh, emotions. You can uh, relate this, uh, what I'm talking about, to an experience in your life because I'm letting you in on what I was feeling at the time. But the in my in my offstage life, I curse like crazy. Okay. <laughs> and, it's, and sometimes right. I actually got scolded at a diner the other day. I was in New York, and I was having <laughs> breakfast with a friend of mine, and uh, uh, there was a dad at the booth next to us with, you know, three kids. And he said, could you guys uh, watch the F-bombs? I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot that in, we're out in the world. In New York City, somebody York, was like, how yeah, dare you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how much we were cursing. That's a lot of cursing. All right, well, please
1: no cursing uh, while
0: we turn to our listeners' etiquette questions. Sure. Uh, here's something from Ann in Los Angeles. Ann asks, best advice for getting senior citizens to stop giving their own commentary at the movie theater?
7: My, my advice to you is continue to age because the older <laughs> you get the more the less annoying this is and the more funny it is oh i yeah. see. I, I i don't know i have a real soft spot for old people <laughs> asking questions or explaining the plot of a movie to each other it warms my heart I love yeah. it it is
0: kind of nice like to me actually yeah. this question is misguided I I don't find that that problem generally is coming from the older generation I find it's like 14 year old kids who are sniggering behind me and I'm like yeah. you haven't earned the right
7: and texting mm. and I feel like it's way more there's a bigger distraction in the movies is people looking at their phones mm-hmm. you know um, completely it, it messes with the light yeah even. it's but also can we admit that most movies not that Good, do you know what I mean? <laughs> it could be improved by yeah. some commentary. I went to a movie with a, a, an old girlfriend of mine. We kind of knew it was going to be a garbagey, dumb action. I think it was like a Ashley Judd Morgan Freeman joint, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> we knew, like, this is not going to be our favorite film. That's a genre now, yeah. And so, we were kind of making little comments to each other. And uh, you know, a third of the way in, uh a guy leaned over and said, Could you guys? would you mind we're trying to watch this we're like oh okay we didn't make any comments and then at the end of the movie the guy said you know what I should have let you talk and that was a terrible movie
1: <laughs> exactly I was thinking I would have sit in front of senior citizens to really enhance it it's like the old men from the Muppets yeah um, alright our next question comes from Lara. she sent this to us uh, via our website Lara writes my second cousin who I am not close with wants to visit my town and asks to stay at my house I don't want to house him however how do I tell him no?
7: I would say, if you are feeling distanced enough from this person to not want him to stay in your home, you're distanced enough to lie and say you don't have the room. <laughs> but how do you?
0: But if mm-hmm. said cousin knows how many rooms you have in your house, and perhaps you're a single person.
7: What's going on with that room? Here's the thing about lying. The world is your oyster. <laughs> you can say so many things. You can say somebody else is staying there already. Mm. Uh, you've had a plumbing issue, and that room has been... What if the cousin's like, great, I'll come over and help fix that plumbing issue?
0: Or who's staying in that the, room? I'll bulk up the lie. Change the lie. You this keep going. This is what's fun Lies about lying. You have, to, you have to look at lying as a
7: fun occupation. Exactly. You can't, don't look at lying as a chore. Yeah, sure. Lies can grow. Lies <laughs> can change.
0: It's like being a fiction writer, you know? Just one thing follows the other. You yeah. say. A, you set right. a character in motion, and you follow him through to the end. There we are. Okay. All right.
1: So, Lara, the answer there is lie. Great. <laughs> uh,
0: you here's something from Dell via Twitter. We don't know where Dell is from. Classic question. While in a bathroom at a party, the TP roll. We're we're being public radio and abbreviating that <laughs> is set to roll under. I hope
7: no one's delicate sensibilities I, are offended. We're, we're allowed to By say the, toilet paper. Can you say toilet tissue? <laughs> I like when commercials say toilet tissue. It's toilet, right?
0: I'm going to restate this. While in a bathroom at a party, the TT roll (laughs) is set to roll under. Is it rude to correct this obvious oversight?
7: Maybe it's rude. Do it anyway. Really? People who put that roll so it goes under, that is demented to me. Really? It's the most logical thing. I set my TT roll to roll under. Why do you do it? Answer me. Why do you do it, it that way? It seems
0: to me that when you tear it away, there's a fulcrum that is created that
7: allows it to tear more easily. I would say you got to change your technique. And here's why. Because it's harder if you lose the thread. Mm. It is harder when it's under to get at the thread to oh, 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 to than to if it's over. Of course, people with cats are exempt. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Mm. Because cats love to unspool mm. a roll of toilet tissue. Boy, howdy, do they. But I have done this in people's homes where I have changed it around, and it's very satisfying. <laughs> it's a crazy antisocial thing to do. But uh, I, you have to... It's like, to... why are you spending so much time
1: there? Yeah. Do you clean their it, medicine it, it, cabinet it, it, while you're there? Like, what is going on? It's You're at a party, you know what? for I will, goodness sakes. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, change
7: the, I'll change the toilet paper roll. I will never look in a medicine cabinet. Oh. I, have, I have made mm. a vow to not do that. That's very nice of okay. okay. you. Yeah. And with that...
0: We have found where Paul F. Tompkins draws the line. (laughs) Paul, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you, guys. Everyone out there, smarten up.
1: Paul F. Tompkins, his show No You Shut Up on
0: the Fusion Network, returns this week. And folks, if you have questions about how to behave or uh, about how to position certain household supplies, <laughs> send us your queries. Head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. We're going to take a little break. Coming up, best selling author Lee Bardugo
1: tells us old adults what's going on in the young adult book section. Mm. Also, we sit down with
0: the great Elvis Costello. When the dinner party download continues.
1: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the Arts and Leisure section of Public Radio. In a few minutes, bestselling author Lee Bardugo lists some grown-up books in the young adult section. But first, how about we
0: hear from a legendary musician? That is a capital idea, sir. <laughs> Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Declan McManus, a.k.a. Elvis Costello, has had one of the most fascinating careers of any pop musician He rose to fame in the 70s with punky power pop hits like Pump It Up and Watching the Detectives. Then he started exploring the Motown sound, country, jazz, classical, and art music. And he went on to collaborate with the biggest
1: names in all those genres. Paul McCartney, Burt Bacharach, T-Bone Burnett, (sighs) Elaine Toussaint. It is a crazy list. Indeed,
0: which explains why his new memoir, which is called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink, clocks in at 650 pages. In it, Elvis talks a lot about the music that shaped his tastes, So when we spoke this week, I asked him to start by reading a passage about his first exposure to the Beatles. Elvis's dad was a singer in a U.K. dance hall band, and each week music companies would send his dad fragile acetate records of new pop tunes so he could learn to sing them.
8: Here's Elvis reading from the book. I never paid any attention to what became of all the records my dad brought home until January 1963, when he was asked to learn Please Please Me by the Beatles. From my room, I heard my dad playing this record over and over again, memorising the descending cadence of the melody. To say it was thrilling and confusing doesn't do it justice. I went into the living room and sat quietly on the couch. My dad usually didn't like to be disturbed when he was working, but I suppose he could see my interest in this song was a little stronger than anything that he had registered before. After the record ended, he lifted it off the turntable, put it back in the paper parlophone sleeve, and dropped it on a pile of sheet music. I don't know how I formed the words exactly, but I asked if he needed Please Please Me anymore. <laughs> he laughed, and he handed the record to me. <laughs> and that's exactly how it happened. I mean, you know, he was doing that week in, week out, and I didn't even register the other records. I have a record geek question for you. What became? You had,
0: I assume, multiple acetates of Beatles songs.
8: I have them. Oh, I, I, God, thank God. I, there's a picture of them in the book. I, I mean, I haven't ever tried to play any of them in recent years because I don't imagine the music is contained there. If it is, it's probably very crackly like a 78. You know, there were, there were a label glued onto the acetate that said, um, some of the acetates just say Beatles. They don't even say <laughs> the Beatles, you know. That's, um, <laughs> oh, what's that? Oh, it's Beatles music. Just type that and then the <laughs> title of the song and that's all. You've got to remember the Beatles were on Parlophone, which was a comedy label. And not many people remark on that. Parlophone was a comedy label, it's the label of Peter Sellers. And I'm not sure EMI knew what to do with the Beatles when they had them. They just shunted them off onto Parlophone. Probably thought they'll have one hit, they've got a strange name. They're silly. The next thing, they they were wolf. Yeah, it was a little bit of that. And then everybody wanted to be on Parlophone, you know.
0: Many years later, you became friends with Paul McCartney, obviously, when he was recording his album, Tug of War, down the hall from you, where you were recording an album. At the time, did you look at it through the eyes of that kid who had, you know, been introduced to rock and roll in a way through the Beatles?
8: You don't really put yourself back at that age. You know, I was trying to be like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be overawed by this. But of course, you know, and then and then Paul and his kids ran in to our studio because they were just at dad's place of work and they were tearing around the hallways and ran into our studio Alice Cooper was in the middle studio, and then Duran Duran oh, were there. No. It. it was it was really like a Fellini film. Yeah, we uh, there's a question that we ask a lot of guests on the show, which is to tell us the the best get
0: together they've ever been to. Basically, every chapter of this book begins with what could be the best get together
8: you've ever been to. There's like chapters that just begin. I was hanging out with Roy Orbison. I was hanging out. With... Yeah, but no, come on now. I don't. I'm not. I'm not just saying it just to mention their name. No, of course I mean, it's things, just
0: amazing. You know,
8: I've actually been asked more about that Roy Orbison concert than anything else. I've i've ever done and i'm happy about that because it was a great night tremendous thrill just to play the rhythm guitar behind it much less that he sang a song i'd written for him uh, yeah of course so all of these things are all i, I generally just try to tell them as a taken off point for how the hell did i get there in the <laughs> first place let me uh take a step back actually so you hear
0: the beatles please please me but that's not the song that convinces you to pick up a guitar and play it. That was a song, according to your book, called Man of the World, which is an early tune by Fleetwood Mac. And we've actually got a clip of it here. Can we play a little bit of it? Sure. Here we go.
8: Shall I tell you
4: about my life? They say I'm a
8: man of the world. I've flown across every time. I've seen lots of... Guess I've got everything I need. I would you.
0: It's such a beautiful, beautiful song. What drew you to that song?
8: Well, I think, you know, when you I don't know what age, I was 14, perfectly melancholy for that age. And I do love Peter Green. He was probably my favorite guitar player and uh who was then in Fleetwood Mac, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that when you say Fleetwood Mac, of course it conjures up a much different image to American listeners, but for us, this was this group. Yeah, it was Um, pre-Stevie Nicks. Yeah, quite a lot pre. In the late 60s, they made these really extraordinary, very original-sounding records. And I had never been moved to pick up the guitar. I'd had one for a number of years, but something about this song made me persevere. I really worked at it because it's, as you hear, it's not easy. It's not a three chord trick. Now, it's
0: interesting because you say in the same chapter that you talk about playing that song that you couldn't imagine at that point playing
8: some other songs you really loved, which were Motown songs or Beatles songs. Weirdly enough, I couldn't play, I couldn't imagine that how you could actually make that sound come out of an instrument. But how is that possible? Because the song that we just heard is not easy. Yeah, but it does start with one guitar. You know, the Motown songs sounded like orchestras to me. I was so shocked when I went in the early 80s to Hitsville in, in the original headquarters. Of Motown, yeah. And it was a tiny little sh- single house, it seemed to me. And I'd imagine the studio in, in my dream was a cathedral because that's what it sounded like with wow. Levi Stubbs singing Bernadette or some song like that you know the reverb made it sound like this huge space and there were strings and woodwinds on some of the songs and somehow those records seemed beyond my imagining they sounded human but at the same time they sounded superhuman you know sure and and when they first came when they first came over they came on the Friday night rock and roll show pop show Ready Steady Go which was the first really hip show on British TV and I don't even think they were singing live. I'm pretty certain they were lip syncing. But their moves and the way they dress were so thrilling. They made all the English groups look like they were wearing potato sacks, you know, (laughs) and, and lumpy guys kind of like jumping from foot to foot. And there's Martin the Vandellas, you know, it was like it was so incredible. Indeed. Well, you learn eventually. You learn a, a lot more songs. You
0: write a few of your own, and then the seventies—you become famous. Bang! It was that easy. Uh, in the book, you
8: recall playing on tour with the Clash around nineteen seventy-seven. No, well, we weren't on tour. We were just at a festival in Belgium. Being on tour would flatter it hugely. <laughs> really, being drunk at a festival would be a more accurate description. <laughs> I mean, I told the story not to make myself look hip. Oh, I hate guys. I knew the Clash. You know. No, no. But so much as I think the story was so idiotic. Uh, went to this festival we played nobody could care less about us the clash played people were throwing cans of beer at the security and then we all ended up in the in a hotel room and then this idiotic scene occurred where the other members of the clash were teasing joe just yes, drummer because they'd spotted that we had a very slight physical resemblance, like we could be distant cousins. And then when Joe put my glasses on, of course, that must have confirmed the suspicion that (laughs) they had. The resemblance. They all just burst out laughing, you know, And, and it's such a... Sort of a sweet memory, really, because, you know, all the other things were all so furious. And some of it sort of trumped up. Yeah, the punk rock scene at the time. You have to say, in retrospect.
0: Well, this is what I wanted to get at. You write that the, you were all just basically silly young people yeah. until a journalist would approach you. Oh, yeah. Then you go into the
8: script, and then you go into the act. Yeah, well, what was the script? What, what did the routine consist of in 1977 for you? Well, for me, it was those first interviews i said a few things which obviously i couldn't have calculated what that they would make so many headlines like yeah there were the first interview i went to i had had an attack of vertigo and by the time i got there i was just grumpy you know and it came out as surly and uh, and they romanticized it into you know this is this is his demeanor he's dangerous you know and and then the next interview I did, I took the precaution of drinking 14 Pernos before I went to it. and So <laughs> everything I came out, you know, you're exaggerating, you know, and they'd goad you a bit more and I'd say something else a bit more outrageous and they'd like that, you know, so I'd say it again. You yeah. And then after a while, it just got convenient just to live by that script because then I wouldn't have to answer any more questions.
0: Well, the good news is we've got just one more question for you and then we'll let you go. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's one of the questions we ask all our guests, which is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party... What question should we not ask you?
8: I really don't. I don't really think there's anything that I would be. Well, know. let me flip this by. Would, would you mind if somebody asked you, could you sing the Secret Lemonade Drinker jingle? I could, but will <laughs> I is the question. You know, <laughs> I was seventeen when I did that, so that's. I don't have quite the same voice. This is my sneaky way of asking if you. Oh, to- you actually want me to do it? No, I can I'm not. No, no. You'll have to find the recording of that. Oh, we have it. And, uh, Can we we play it? You should play it. I think it's wonderful. You want to set this up for the people that almost certainly don't know what this is? So my my father in the 1960s, aside from playing on the radio with a dance band, he he would record jingles for advertising. And um, one of them, strangely enough, in 1973, was a lemonade commercial for a brand of lemonade that's as popular and as well-known in England as 7-Up is, you know. And Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason the ad people decided that he was going to sing this jingle in an Elvis Presley voice, backed by what sounded like the Swingin' Blue Jeans, <laughs> like a Mersey Beat group fronted by Elvis Presley. Yeah. So my father and I sang the name of the product, Our Whites. It's the bizarrest yes. session, but it was also my first professional session. All right, here it is, Elvis's dad, Ross, with
0: backing vocals by Elvis Costello in his first recording session.
7: Whites, Oh, I
1: would oh,
3: Secret lemonade drinker Always, always Always Always. lemonade (laughs) Always, always, always
8: Always lemonade Unbelievable And and here's the the weird thing Once I started my career, sort of, 1977 And then a few months later they discovered I'd been on that recording It was all over It was put back on the TV Even though the ad looked a little funkier then 10 years later, they revived it again. Then they reshot the advert, but different people still use the same jingle. It's inescapable.
0: Yeah. Elvis Costello, uh, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, for sharing some of your life with us. Thank you. I Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink is the new memoir from Elvis Costello. It came out this week, as did an accompanying soundtrack featuring his music and audio excerpts of passages that didn't make it into the published book. Because, you know, he had to keep it to a lean 650 pages. Of course. (laughs) So you had better do what you were told. And now the guest list in which an interesting person lists some interesting things.
1: And our guest this week is author Lee Bardugo. She first cracked the New York Times bestseller list with The Grisha Trilogy, a young adult fantasy series set in a world based on Tsarist Russia. Right now, her new novel is the best-selling young adult book in the land. Here's Lee to tell us about it and her list.
9: Hi, I'm Lee Bardugo. I'm the author of Six of Crows, It is a fantasy novel that I always describe as Ocean's Eleven meets Game of Thrones. It is a magical heist book, but it is young adult. And I know that that sends some people running and it shouldn't because young adult is not a genre it is a marketing category it is just designed to get more kids to read books but you'll find a lot of adults reading them too and that's because this category has so much to offer it has contemporary stories fantasy stories sci-fi stories literary stories Um, so I'm going to introduce you to three titles that are labeled young adult but that are for everyone no matter their age (laughs) My first pick is Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell. Now this is the one you are most likely to have heard of. It's been on the bestseller list a long time and is about two people, Eleanor and Park, who fall in love over music and comics in the 1980s. It hits that nostalgic sweet spot for adults. When you hear these kids describe the first time they hear love will tear us apart, if it doesn't move you, you are dead inside. Here's the thing, we are used to seeing these kind of saccharine teen romances. And yes, there are lots of cutesy romps that you can find in young adult. Eleanor and Park is something different. Rainbow Rao writes falling in love with this beautiful clarity and this humor that trust me on this one, it will resonate with you. My second pick for adults, particularly adult fantasy fans is The Young Elites by Marie Lu. I want you to picture a superhero story set in a world inspired by Renaissance Italy. It follows a girl named Adelina, who has been through a horrible plague and has been left scarred, but also with an extraordinary power, as have several other kids who find each other through this story as they are hunted by the authorities. Now, I know this may sound a little familiar. Yes, they're familiar tropes, but Marie Lou is really turning them on their head. Adelina is basically like a young Vader. This is a super villain story. It's young Vader in her prime. This book will leave you wondering who's in the right and who's in the wrong. You won't know whether to cheer for the authorities or cheer for Adelina, who is becoming darker, more brutal as she goes. And one of the things I love about this is I don't see a lot of female anti-heroes or villains. Marie has brought that to the young adult world. My third pick is a young adult graphic novel by Gene Yang about race, being an underdog, about family. It's called The Shadow Hero. And The Shadow Hero tells the story of the first Asian superhero. He's a Chinese-American teenager named Hank. (laughs) We see Hank working side by side with his father in their neighborhood store. And we also see Hank's disappointment in his father uh, when he fails to stand up to some neighborhood enforcers who are looking to extort money out of them. The hero of the story initially tries to be a superhero, but he doesn't have superpowers. And so he gets a terrible beatdown and there are tremendous repercussions from it. But his mom is really not willing to let the matter rest. She pushes him into continuing his role as a hero. And in fact, she drives the getaway car. Um, She's basically his sidekick for his first couple of jobs. Um, And their dynamic is amazing. We all have these tremendous moments of transition, and that's what these books speak to. They speak to upheaval. And I think we can all relate to that. We get married, we get divorced, we have kids, we start a new job, we move to a new city. We're always trying to define ourselves and find our tribes. That's why adults seek out young adult books.
0: Lee Bardugo. Her novel Six of Crows was one of the New York Times' notable books of 2015.
1: And that's the Dinner Party Download for this week. Be sure to stop by next week and you'll hear the live show we just taped in L.A. starring musician Father John Misty and Mozart in the Jungle actor and producer Jason Schwartzman. Till then, the party doesn't end when our voices leave your eardrums.
0: We're always on Twitter or Instagram where our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is producer of the Dinner Party Download. Our associate producer is Nina Potok and our associate digital producer is christina lopez carla javier and Kristen coons are our interns bill lance engineered and our executive producer is larissa anderson not laurie
8: anderson but they're equally cool
2: till next time bon appetit